1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today.
2: From the 11th and Hanif abdur this is Time Machine. The score.
0: Side B. Interlude. Home.
3: I was only 10 when the score came out. It was
1: 96 So uh, I was 12 years old. When The Score was released, I was about 12 years old, living in Miami, in Little Haiti, actually. Being Haitian at that time, it was not cool. (laughs) Not not in the least. Y'all eat cat, and y'all do voodoo. And I remember always doing my best to try to assimilate as just one of the other Black kids. Then all of a sudden, it, it shifted, and yeah, The Score, that's what changed. <laughs> I, the score is what happened.
3: We'd always ask the bus driver to put music on. Listening to that in a group of other Black kids and other kids of color and other white kids around us, that was like really empowering.
1: If you listen to to really any music that Yclef or, or Praz are, are doing, they love to drop a lock high.
4: You know, but just
1: hearing those words here and there, it was like, was that Creole?
0: To be in that group and to have references that were like Haitian words,
3: even on How Many Mics, when they come out and it's like, you know, How Many Mics, and it's like, me say many, me say many, many, many.
4: How many mics do we rip on the deli? Say me say mini money. Say me say many, many, many. You know, in Creole, in Haitian Creole,
3: many is like... Like here they are, here it is, here it is. And so it's kind of like a play on words too that, you know, as a young kid I could hear and appreciate.
4: Wyclef does things uh that you hear in compa music a lot. The way he sings his vibrato, it's
3: different. Father, don't let bury
4: me. That's how they scream, that's how they like belt out music. Like, you don't gotta be the best singer. Hearing Wyclef Jean, we feel like we made it. Like we, we gangster now. Like we we can ride with the rest of them. Like nobody can touch us.
1: There are kids at school who were Haitian. I that I didn't know were Haitian until after it was okay. <laughs> and we were all hiding. We were all like, you know. And of course now it's like, oh, I should have known that Jean Pierre was Haitian. <laughs> It didn't like switch things overnight, but I can definitely tell like that was the moment where it was a little more cool to be Haitian, um, a little less hard.
4: Track five. On Haiti. By the spring
2: of 1997, the score was a hit, and its primary architects had become household names. The Fujis went to play a concert in Haiti. There's this documentary MTV made in 1997. You see the Fujis on a plane. They've just landed in Port au Prince. They're about to play a show to some 70,000 people. The cameras follow them as they make their way onto the tarmac with an excited crowd waiting for them behind a yellow security ribbon. Then Wyclef suddenly drops his bag and his guitar and runs into the crowd.
4: Yo, what's up MTV? I'm Wyclef. El Boogie up in here. And I'm Prize. <laughs> and we live in Haiti. Haiti, hey! that's some nice! noise! Yes, yes, y'all.
2: When I was young, I loved the group, but didn't think much of the name. Fuji's was fun to say. It sits well on the tongue and bounces off of it smoothly. But I was too young or too oblivious to consider the full name, even when it was shouted in songs, even when it was worked into album liner notes. Refugees. The refugee camp. Mike Jean immigrated to the United States from Haiti in 1978. Praz is first-gen. His parents were from Haiti. Their producer, Jerry Wanda, is from Haiti. Lauren isn't Haitian, but that never really mattered. The album that made the Fuji's famous was about claiming your place, no matter where you came from in the diaspora. Haiti was the first black-led republic. They fought for their independence from the French, and won, but they had to pay for it. Literally, they had to pay the French who had enslaved them on the island. It took 122 years. An era of instability ensued.
1: Ordo Prince, Haiti,
0: the newest and sorest trouble spot in the Caribbean. Is so
2: near and it continues today.
0: The violence came after a day of jubilation in the streets. Haitians were celebrating a promised change of power as top U.S.
2: Political military... fractures, <laughs> natural disasters, coups, and CIA puppets. Outsiders flooded the country with aid after each disaster, both natural and man made. And ultimately, many Haitians fled their country and the Haitian refugees who showed up on America's shores
4: were not welcome. Don't blame the Haitians for what they do not do. We got fucked over in the 80s, man. Like, 80s was bad for us. Chris X is a music writer.
2: He was born in Haiti in the 70s and immigrated to New York in the 80s.
4: Oh, man, it was horrible. Yo, we got beat up. We got chased down. We got called HBO, Haitian body odor. We was we was the one that bought AIDS. We were the niggas of the Caribbean. Everyone could shit on us. This is part of the long memory of whiteness and that it will not forgive Haiti for becoming free. And it's done everything in its power to impoverish Haiti and to make Haiti, the butt of every bad statistic and joke and everything it can.
2: This is the context in which the Fujis formed, the context in which they recorded the score, with images on the news of folks who looked and sounded like Wyclef and Praz and their families, fighting their way to the shores of a country where they would then face new discrimination. There's plenty to debate when it comes to the commercial success of the score, Was it due purely to Lauren's talent as an MC? Was it Praz's production acumen or Clef's ability to market the group? But it's this other success, this reclamation, which I think we can fairly credit to Wyclef and to Praz. They were Haitian, a hard thing to be at the time, and they wanted to make sure everyone knew it. Here's Wyclef in the MTV documentary.
4: Well, basically, the country got its independence in 1804. But what's important for people to know is we have been struggling ever since then. Is you have poor people, rich people. There's no such thing as middle class at all. You know what I mean?
3: And it's not like, you know, Clef is the first Haitian hip-hop artist.
2: Dream Hampton is a film director and writer.
3: It just wasn't something that you claimed, you know? And, And it's not like Biggie or Busta were claiming to be Jamaican. They were claiming Brooklyn. So these are like, you know, first generation kids who really you know may have an experience of going back to the island for summers or once in a while um but they're they're claiming their their boroughs haitian's tend to be in queens or new jersey <laughs> which weren't which weren't like places that you necessarily claim but Clef came in and, and you know
4: he claimed all of that Mama always told me you one in the million always watch it back never tangle with haitian cecilia's
2: When I think about the Fugees and Haiti, I think about this moment in 1997 at the Grammys. And the best rap album is... The Fugees. The score just won Rap Album of the Year, and the Fugees walk on stage.
4: Um, At this moment, let's not forget the refugees in Zaire going through this bad situation right now. nor the refugees in Haiti. Um, we
2: want to and why Clef has, has a giant Haitian flag
4: wrapped around his body. He knew what he was doing. That wasn't a mistake. Um, yeah. I remember, you know, and um, that S.Doc Carter record where Jay Z's like, you know, I went on MTV with Durags. I made them love you. That's the attitude that I feel like Clef had. Like he, he was very aware that. Haitians were the butt of many jokes, that we were the lowest on the totem pole in the Caribbean, that our accomplishments through history had been untold or diminished or hidden.
5: The act of flight is seen as a shameful thing, right?
2: Musa Okwanga is a writer and musician. His parents both fled Uganda, and in 1996, he was coming of age in England.
5: The score as an album, to me, Created a framework for that to be like, look, there's nothing wrong. It's dignified actually to escape. You know, get out if you have to.
4: A dedication to all the refugees worldwide.
5: So that was incredibly political for me. There's always a Haiti, there's always a Haitian American, you know, in, in a different country, a different context. It could be the Bosnian Muslim or it could be the Roma community in Italy. You know, and and so every country has a Haitian American, um, and I think what was so powerful was the describing that experience in such a specific way made it resonate all the more. Good friends we have. Good friends we've
4: loved. The thing about the score is like it's such a pro black fucking record, Chris X, but this is about the rebirth of everything, everything. It was like a second coming. It was just like a a planting of the flag, and unapologetically so, you know.
2: For some people, the score was a political work, a Black resistance album. And that music was the same music that soccer moms played in their minivans, bopping along to Killing Me Softly, easy listening. And for a lot of refugees, Haitian or not, The message from the score was like an anthem. They heard themselves in the album. They heard home.
3: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and
2: a member FDIC. I'm Bobby Finger.
0: And I'm Lindsay Weber.
2: And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to
0: love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay
2: Weber and me, Bobby Finger.
0: Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning Listener queries.
2: Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Track six on Miss Lauren Hill. When I was young, on the days I would hear Roberta Flax killing me softly, wafting out of a stereo or a car speakers, I always assumed it to be a sad song, a song of longing, a song of anguish. I didn't yet hear what Lauren Hill heard until I heard it springing forth from her own voice. The song could also be a song of joyful, pleasureful release, a song of giving in to the inevitability of your affection. When Lauren Hill sang, I heard it for the first time as a pure love song. Uh, yeah. On Killing Me Softly, Lauren is defying gravity. She glides over the harmonies, over a beat that dares you not to move.
0: I heard he sang a good song. I heard he had star.
2: It was a single with staying power, performed to this day whenever a vocalist wants to stop time to make a moment. It was Lauren, the star, singing a powerful, gently moving, spectacle of a song.
0: To my eyes, strumming my pain with his finger.
2: The thing I want to talk about today is Lauryn Hill's voice, how she used it, and how she was expected to use it. If you were in school in the era I was in school, you might understand the delight that comes when a substitute teacher wheeled the large, bulky TV cart with a VCR into the room. I first saw Sister Act Two in what I think was an art class in middle school. We had a substitute teacher for a whole week, and by Thursday, he brought in a TV and a few movies.
4: Come on, just try it.
2: I remember sitting in a room and collectively marveling at Lauryn Hill with people who were young enough and eager enough to marvel at a star in the making. She was 18 years old when the film came out in
0: 1993. And I sing because I'm free.
2: It must be said, too, that the final act, the performance of Joyful Joyful, is almost, almost, irreconcilably corny to watch now. It's kind of a fever dream of 90s aesthetics, haphazardly slapped onto a sonic and visual landscape. But at the end of that scene, where she emerges from the crowd of singers and briefly takes her place at the center of the stage, something turns. The mood and point of propulsion shift.
3: To me, just the narrative of Black women in music is basically, you should just sing, girl. The narrative is like, be our R&B girl. Like, sing soul, sing the blues.
2: This is Danielle Smith, culture journalist and former editor-in-chief of Vibe magazine.
3: So it seemed very strategic to me even back then that either the Fuji's as a group would make a decision or Columbia or whoever would push Lauren into singing more than into rapping. I mean, the numbers would just spell it out that she had a better chance of becoming a superstar as a singer than as a rapper. I mean, that's still just true today.
5: The first time you hear Lauren rap or sing, you know. Musa Okwanga,
2: writer and podcaster for The Ringer.
5: You just, you knew, you knew the way that she entered a track. You know, the, one of the things underrated as an MC is how you come on a track and the way, that Lauren, the way that Lauren entered. It's like coming through the saloon door. Like when, when Lauren drops the first bar, you don't need to hear the next 15. You know, you already know.
0: How many
2: mics she kicks off with a verse that is potent and surgical, and then you hear her on Ready or Not.
0: Like Ellie Yes.
2: singing the chorus and then delivering one of the best verses of the album I could do what you do, easy front niggas give me heebie-jeebies it's scathing, boastful, comical and then, just like that she's back to the chorus
0: ready or not here I come you can't hide gonna find you and take it slow
2: and then there's La. Look at the opening of her verse. There's not much wiggle room on the sound she plays with at the end of those bars. It's kind of like she's running full speed and just darting into whatever small opening
5: she could find. She's a novelist, actually. Like, all the best MCs are novelists, right? There's some Sylvia Plath, there's some Toni Morrison. It's all in there. So Lauren Hill could say in two lines what other rappers would say in two minutes that is what made her deadly that's what makes her an Andre 3000 and doom and a couple of others really like absolutely lethal as mcs the ability to drop two bars of like timeless knowledge it's like aesop's fables if that makes sense
3: i mean a lot of guys couldn't hang with
5: her writer karen good marable
3: her lyrical game was treacherous. Some people called her arrogant, but I'm like, she's an MC. Of course she's arrogant. Like, of course. Like, you need to come out swinging. And, you know, and and I wasn't mad at it. I think that she should have been. She's in the tradition of MC Light. You know, she's in the tradition of Latifah.
1: I bring rap to those who disrespect me like
3: a dame. She's in a tradition of Moni Love. She's in a tradition of Bahamadia. I used imagination like Honso. Master like Vic with the offbeat flow.
2: Philly rapper Bahamadia supported Fuji's when they were on tour with the score.
3: Specifically, I remember the impact it started to have on Lauren. Going for one face like when we started out, you know, you're energetic, you're going on stage, you're doing what you need to do, you know what I mean? it seeming like it became, like, a little overwhelming because it all started to happen like a floodgate just opened. It doesn't hit you at first, and then all of a sudden, the people around you are adjusting to the illusion that fame creates or that, you know, a celebrity creates.
2: It's not easy to hold on to yourself in an industry that commodifies you but isn't really for you. A space where thousands of strangers are projecting things on you that you can't reasonably carry.
0: It's funny how money changes situation. Miscommunication lead to In
2: 1998, Lauren released her first solo album, The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. It was a masterpiece. It was an album about loving your blackness. It was about stepping out on your own. And It was a reaction to all the ways her life had changed since 1996, good and bad.
0: Look at your career, they say. Lauren, baby, use your head. This is a category,
3: album of the year.
5: This year, all five nominations feature female vocalists.
2: Whitney Houston and Sting had the job of announcing the album of the year on stage at the Grammys. Whitney Houston peers over Sting's shoulder Reads the winner's name
4: and the album of the year
2: is and starts cheering before the words are out of Sting's mouth.
4: The miseducation of Lauren Hill, Lauren Hill,
2: pumping her fist in the air like that's my girl, Danielle Smith. Again,
3: I know it's very difficult to imagine, but there hadn't been like a black person, a rap album to win anything, and to see her up there with all those Grammys. I could literally cry right now thinking about it. And she looked so great and she was so strong and we all just were so proud of her. It was like, it was just like happiness on top of happiness. It was like we all won the Grammys. And we could sit up and say, well, you know, forget the Grammys, you know, the Grammys are flawed. The Grammys don't like black music. The Grammys are segregated. And yes, all of that is true. It is a flawed metric, but it is the metric that we had. And we were proud of her, man, and we still are.
2: This moment was the height of Miss Lauren Hill's fame. For reasons we can guess, but never really know, she started to pull back. She seemed less invested in selling a commercial version of herself and catering to a mainstream audience. From the outside, it seemed like she was invested in living her life in reclaiming herself, in being more than just the Lauren Hill that people saw on stage.
3: It's kind of heartbreaking to me, honestly. It's very hard sometimes to speak about the journeys of Black women in music because so much of it is wrapped up in pain and so much of it is wrapped up in um, romantic relationships that go awry or to appear in bitter betrayals on the part of creative partners and... It also is wrapped up in the perception that white Americans have of black women being these vessels of emotion that always have to show up and carry everybody's blues and translate everybody's sorrows and punctuate everybody's joys and et cetera, et cetera. And that shit gets really hard, excuse my language, and it's a load. You know some people out there-
2: Lauren has been on stage from a very young age. She performed at the Apollo in
4: 1987.
2: She was booed, and it is hard to watch this young black girl, hair pressed, hoop shining, nerves jittering, and being booed by people who look like family but it's in the way she doesn't back down, how she takes command of her voice and the song, and by the end, has the audience cheering. Watching this video from the Apollo now, I am grateful to once again witness the power the strength of Miss Lauren Hill. And I'm so grateful for what she would go on to do from there, for the connection I'd have with her career that would linger and loom large over so many memorable moments in my life, that her songs and her rhymes would be in the background during basketball games or first kisses or first day of school bus rides. Lauren Hill is someone I would return to for a soundtrack, not for the sake of nostalgia as much, but for the sake of feeling, all while knowing that I'm also greedy with those feelings, constantly craving more.
3: Do I wish there was more from her? Do I wish that she performed more? Do I wish that she recorded more? Do I wish that she told more of her stories? Do I wish that we just knew more? If she, do I wish she just talked more about her process and her genius and things like that? Absolutely, but that's for all black women.
2: Track seven, On Death and Rebirth. My oldest brother had a treasure chest full of cassette tapes. Hundreds of them collected over nearly a decade to that point. Most of them rap albums. In my worst childhood dreams, They would all be gone overnight. Someone would come in and take them away, and that would be the end of the music as I knew it.
0: Tupac Shakur dead at the age of 25 of gunshot wounds sustained Saturday night, September 7th in Las Vegas. Police still have no leads on suspect or motive.
5: Some rappers Chico, agree saying the only way to make things better is to get hip hop back to its original state before the advent of I mean, lyrics that glorified nothing, death and violence.
1: It's a black old art form, but it was
4: made for the whole world to listen to. And if we as the creators do not take responsibility for what this is, it's going to be gone. It's going to be gone.
2: The consensus was that everyone knew Tupac was going to die. My brothers claimed they knew. Everyone on my school bus claimed they knew. He'd flown too close to the violent sun for too long. It was 1996. This was in an era before news could be disseminated through social media, and there was a week between Tupac's shooting and Tupac dying. Within that week, hope had started to grow and then rapidly dwindle among my circles. And so when the news of his death hit, what was there to do but shrug heavily and say you knew it was coming? Insist that you'd prepared yourself for specifically this. The biggie news came six months later on a Sunday. It was 1997. I was up early watching my usual Sunday smorgasbord of television. Then the MTV news break.
4: Hi,
3: I'm Serena Altro with an MTV News special report. Rapper Chris Wallace, better known as Notorious B.I.G., was shot and killed in Los Angeles early Sunday morning.
0: He'd apparently You, get,
3: you, you, you don't know how miserable everybody was. Like, people, we were miserable. Yeah.
2: Danielle Smith, culture journalist and former editor-in-chief of Vibe magazine.
3: Grown people who weren't even fans of rap who thought that rap was negative and should be banned from the world, like people's grandparents. don't. Nobody wants to see people shot down in the street. It was terrible. It was terrible. I like to remain uh, as calm about these kind of things as I can, but it was terrible.
2: When I was 12, Tupac and Biggie were adults to me, in the vaguest sense possible. I didn't know how old they were when they died, just that they'd lived lives that seemed grown up. I think sometimes you maybe gotta live past 25 to understand how young 25 is. You have to find yourself stumbling through the uncertainties and fears of the ages to know that you still don't know shit. I didn't understand how young Pac and Big were when they died, and I didn't understand how young the few people I knew who got murdered or beaten on around my block were. I just told myself they were adults, that they'd lived full and generous lives, one of the many denials projected onto my youthful self.
3: I mean, when you ask about that era, I mean, it was just, I don't know, it's still very painful. I did not know Biggie, but I did know Tupac, so it's not like just... A superstar died. It was a person that I knew very well and my family knew well, so
2: it was a very painful time. I was a kid, but I felt this. It was hanging in the air. I felt afraid of what would happen to rap music if its stars kept getting killed, especially through gun violence. The score was my companion during this time. I'd put in my headphones and find a sense of solace. The Fujis floated above all this loss. Ready or not, here I, come. You can hide. I remember I'd take my Walkman, my dubbed cassette of the score tucked safely inside, and listen to Ready or Not on repeat, rewinding each time I reached the end, counting the exact seconds of rewinding until I knew to stop, landing exactly at the song's opening. It was an ominous song for an ominous time, both anxious and palpably unafraid, offering a warning for and against whatever was coming. And then there's this image from that time that's burned in my mind. Michael Jordan was crying on the floor of the United Center locker room on Father's Day. He'd won his fourth title. His first since returning to the game, meaning his first since 1993, meaning his first since his father had been murdered.
5: An emotional moment for Michael
0: Jordan. The tears are flowing.
2: So much of the Jordan aesthetic and mythology to that point had been built around structured and concentrated moments of performance, of image building. This was not one of those moments. Jordan fell apart on the floor of the United Center, holding a basketball and trembling with loud gasping sobs. the iconic 23 on the back of his jersey pulsing with each
5: heave. A few moments and I would think there is a tie with his late dad on this father's day 1996.
2: I remember being 12 years old and not entirely understanding this. I hadn't lost anyone yet. But his father had been dead for three years, I remember thinking, foolishly. Why is he still crying about it now? Almost a year later, to the day, my mother was gone. I was 13 years old. The morning I got the news, I didn't cry. I didn't cry in the weeks that followed, even though I could hear my father crying through the house's thin architecture. I didn't cry at the funeral, and I didn't cry when people brought meals to the house. I thought that this was some kind of failure of emotional expression, until the first week of the new school year. My first year going to a different school than my brother, which meant that I had to walk to and from the bus stop alone. The batteries had died in my Walkman, which was a real bummer, because I had no money. And the trick was that I'd scour the house to find a remote I could swap the batteries out of, or even just one battery. But I'd had no luck. I walked home with headphones on anyway, just to avoid talking. There was no music to distract me, no melody lingering in my head. I found a bench at the back of a familiar park. I sat down and cried for what felt like hours, but was maybe only minutes. And when I finally stood up, everything made sense. A hard thing to understand when you experience loss as a young person is that grief is not just something you let go of and move on from. It is harder and more humbling. To understand that so often, grief decides when it is done with you and not the other way around. And so often, the heaviest grief is never exactly done with any of us. It just finds a new way to carve itself into our interior makeup. It builds a home which it makes its way out of every now and then to remind us that it is still here, still humming as a vital part of our machine.
3: We had been to the funerals and everything. We had been mourning. And all the talk was in hip-hop circles and cultural circles was that hip-hop was over. It was dead. It was dying with with Tupac and Biggie. And hip-hop was over. I mean, Lord knows the mainstream press had been telling us it wasn't going to last since the moment it was invented. So we all started thinking that maybe, you know, they were right. There was a song out called uh, Stomp from Kirk Franklin and the family. And I had a remix with Salt from Salt and Pepper. Make me thankful, pity the and I was like, there hasn't really been a number one R&B song that's like gospel record since Aretha. I was like, this is the repast. This is the second line, Like this is the, this is the part where we realize that we're going to be alright, to quote one of hip-hop's newest and best.
2: I don't find myself listening to the score much now, but not because it isn't great. In a way, for me, it stings. My childhood fears about hip-hop vanishing never came to fruition. No one swept in and took all of my cassettes and CDs away from me. But I never got another album from the Fugees. I have forced myself to make peace various times over with being grateful for what an artist gives when they give it, and not feeling owed anything beyond that. But with the score, I find myself foregoing that natural impulse and becoming a bit more petulant. It is unfair, of course, to feel like something was taken away from me when the group went their separate ways. The score is singular, but when I hear the album now, it's hard not to spiral into what could have been, what might still be, maybe. I've become so well-versed in letting go in so many ways during my life. When I hear almost any part of the score, I'm transported to an era to a moment that I understand as the architecture for who I am now. And when I consider that, I don't need anything more. The Fujis gave me everything I needed. Sometimes, something beautiful and nearly perfect comes into the world, and there's no second act. There isn't more. Sometimes things break and don't get repaired, or reborn. And understanding that is important. It's part of growing up.
0: Time Machine, The Score, is a project of the eleventh from Pineapple Street Studios. It's written and produced by Hanifa Durakib, Eric Menel, Chloe Persinos, Kristen Torres, Janelle Piper, Joel Lovell, and me, Alexis Moore. We were edited by Leela Day. Our executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Original score, sound design, and mixing by Raj Makija. Additional music from Blink Forms, Blue Dot Sessions, Tracklib, and of course, the Fugees. Additional mixing by Hannes Brown. Legal support by Bianca Grimshaw, Becca Theodore, and Donaldson Caleb perez including Sarah Schwartzman and Matthew Morentis. Fact-checking by Isabel Cristo. Additional recording at Shock City Studios in St. Louis. Sales and marketing by Cadence 13. Artwork is by Jonathan Conda. Production support from Grace Chen. Special thanks to Himia Freeman, Stephen Key, Dina Kleiner, Yinka Rickford-Anguin, Mustafa Abdul Rahim, C Hunter Zuli, Yang Wong, Jasmine Flott, Terry Francois, Rick Esteman, Gilda Fay, John Asanti, and the East Side Riders Bike Club. I also want to thank my mom and my dad and Shanice and Janelle for their support in this project.
2: And some special thank yous from me, everyone at Pineapple Street who helped tell this story and bring it to life. Joel, Eric, Janelle, Alexis, Chloe, Kristen, Raj, and Leela. And also, special thanks to Sarah Galdez for your percussion expertise. Thanks to everyone who took time out of their days and their lives to talk to me for this. Jeff Weiss, Sly Dunbar, Havoc, Danielle Smith, Mark Baptiste, Karen Good-Marable, Brian Freeman, Estee Ochoa, Chris Schwartz, Chris X, Jerry Wanda, Dream Hampton, Musa Okwanga, and Bahamidea. And finally, of course, thanks to the Fujis themselves, Miss Lauren Hill, Wyclef, and Proz.
0: Thanks for listening. See you next month on the 11th.